And the Lepati CDs arrived, and he put on his performance of Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring. Every single person in the shop came up to see what was playing. Even if listeners who are less able to articulate what they're hearing or maybe aren't as trained, I do think when you hear that, that quality, I think a lot of people will catch it. Welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Levitt. And we have on the line today two incredible guests. First of all, our, our master of music, Elias Axel Pedersen. Welcome to the show again. Elias, I'm grateful to have you on. I, I love co-hosting this stuff with you. It is a ball. Yep. It's so much fun. And, and we get the best guests mostly because of you. So thank you. <laughs> and then we also have on the line Mark Ainley. We've had him on before. And, and I'm excited so much about this subject. Mark is a, is a specialist in several fields. Um, specifically, what we're going to be talking about is he's, he's been um, active in curating and researching historical piano recordings and has gained an international reputation as an expert in this arena. Uh, he has written about several legendary pianists for International Piano Magazine, Classical Recordings Quarterly, and International Classical Recordings Collector, as well as CD liners on various international labels. Um, he's probably um, most known and, and maybe his, his claim to fame is, is um, discovering some, some unique um, recordings of, of Labadi and, and his um, amazing uh, piano work. And so just, again, I wanna welcome you to the show, Mark. Thanks for being on. And Thank you so much for Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our last conversation and I'm looking forward to tonight's. Yeah, as, as did we, as did we, it was, it was fantastic. Well, and, and I'm excited about this particular conversation as we kind of went back and forth about what to talk about. I think um, you came up with a, a tremendous idea and, and, um, and it reminded me, so, so what we want to talk about is, is how to recognize and, and how to what to listen for, um, uh, what makes a good, good performance. Um, specifically piano performance. And, um, and I told the, told the guys earlier that, that it reminded me of when, when I was watching the Olympics as, as a younger man. Um, and, uh, and I watched these two um, sets of, of skaters. It was the, I think it was the ice dance competition actually. And they were performing and it was both beautiful, but there was one that was just spectacular in my mind. Like they were flamboyant and they were, big and all their movements were incredible and they they went prone onto the ice at the end and it was just amazing this amazing performance in my mind um and then the other one was i mean it was good it was spectacular it was great but it was not not you know what i thought was you know the the best of the of the night and then one of the the commentators on the on the uh on the show um literally did a side by side and, and pointed out so much of the detail that went into that other performance that I thought was, was second tier. Um, and I noticed just what amazing detail and incredible skill and, and how tight they were. It was, it was an amazing adjustment. And I, I literally saw this 
these performances with brand new eyes. And, and I hope to bring new ears to maybe some of our listeners as, as we talk about um, what makes a great piano performance. So I'm excited to talk about this, Mark. Yeah, I think it's really important because, you know, we're not trained how to listen and what to listen for. So even if you learn how to play the piano, and I think a lot of people, at least in my generation, you know, people took piano lessons, even if they didn't go to sort of, you know, training for a moderately even professional level. But I don't think we ever really learned how to listen. And I think a lot of music appreciators and people who go to concerts, you know, they're hearing the music, but they're not necessarily hearing some of those finer details, as you're saying. They might hear some of the big elements, right? Uh, uh, you know, for example, like in an orchestra, are the musicians actually playing together? You know, and if, if the, <laughs> any soloist, are they, you know, you might be able to recognize if you have some musical ears that, oh, that was the wrong note, or, well, that part was really loud, and uh, or the hands weren't together. You might be able to hear some basic things like that, but when it comes to some of those finer details and what separates, you know, if we want to say the A list from the B list <laughs> or the C list, right? right. Uh, I think, you know, unfortunately we're not really trained in that. And of course I think it's great if people are just going to concerts and buying recordings and they're appreciating the music. That's already great because we want to make sure that classical music does well and it survives. And I, I think this is important. But we also do want to be able to appreciate more than just the composer on a basic level. We want to hear an interpreter who's really bringing the music to life. There's a great anecdote of uh, the great Beethoven pianist, Arthur Schnabel, uh, applauding after somebody's performance at a concert, which apparently wasn't very good because his friend who was sitting next to him said, how come you're applauding such a terrible performance? And he said, I'm applauding Beethoven, mm -hmm. uh, which I think we're all doing when we go to a concert anyway, yes. right? There's immediately, there's that performance, you know, that, that relationship with a piece of music. But a skilled interpreter will be able to bring something particular out in that piece of music that somebody else might not that can help us appreciate it more and i think the more we're able to listen to these nuances the more we can appreciate both the performer and the piece of music as well yeah i was going to say a quick little thing here too when you mentioned beethoven um i think that's one reason why he and many of the other <clears throat> the other big names are performed so often because people recognize the music and and that's yes. another discussion of you know, how do you get newer composers or even uh, composers that are famous but not quite as famous, the sort of second tier, not necessarily in talent, but just in fame. How do you get those into the concert hall? Because Beethoven's ninth and fifth are going to be played every season, you know. Always. So, and the same, know. there's like a pool of like five out of Mozart's 27 concertos that yep. get played. Right. And, you know, always the same. And when you hear Schumann, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be Kindersen and Chrysler. You know, it's so, yep. you know, 15, 12, 16, yeah. 17, you know, and uh, what about anything over Opus 100? You mm -hmm. know, when he were there, some later works by famous composers as well that aren't well known. Uh, Metner is, you know, well known yep. now and better yep. known, but 50 years ago, you know, during Metner's lifetime uh, as well, 70 years ago or so he wasn't as well known uh and it's it's a shame and it's true you know there, there's all kinds of great music Lyapunov or you know mm -hmm. all kinds of uh and Blumenfeld mm -hmm. uh some great composers who I think you know people would like that but this is this and this comes down to then part of the challenge that uh 
on some level, people want some familiarity because they, right. they don't want to be completely in the dark and they want to have a feeling that they kind of know something that's going on. And this is where, you know, Rachmaninoff suffered from this of having to play his prelude in C-sharp minor in every recital because it was a big hit and everybody wanted to hear it, you know, and then everybody wanted to hear, you know, Paderewski play Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata or something like that. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, People want to hear what they already know, but the reality is that a lot of the discovery comes when we hear something we don't know. And I think the same goes for when we hear an interpretation that brings out something new yeah, in, in something that, piece, that we yeah. already, yeah, in something we already know. Like there's, I did a, uh, I did a podcast episode recently where I compared four, I think it was fourteen different hmm. versions of the first movement of the Moonlight Sonata, hmm. and I mean they're all different and they're all great and you know timing varying between four minutes and seven and a half minutes for that one movement yeah and you know and people can just dismiss it based on the tempo for example (laughs) based on the speed it's like oh well it's so slow it's like yeah but if you listen to the whole thing you'll hear why he's doing that and what he's doing with that and so it's not to just choose this one axis if you want of like speed you know and that's like a horizontal plane, uh, but there's more dimensions and more multidimensional planes, if we want to get mathematical with this, uh, in terms of what a performer is doing that they can bring out. And so, you know, I think for novice listeners, it's great if they're paying attention to whatever they're paying attention to. Oh, he got softer here, or oh, that was faster. That's fine, you know, and if they have some emotional reaction to it, that's great. But I think uh, it's helpful to know a little bit more what it is that we can listen for and start yeah. to adjust our ears, just like uh, just like Mike, what you were saying in terms of how you started seeing that ice dance competition differently once somebody pointed out some of those finer nuances. Right. Yeah. So I was going to actually ask, and this is uh, well, two things. One was when you brought up people, uh, the, the average listener, you know, might hear different dynamics or maybe notes that are not together and. Of course, I would contend that most listeners probably don't hear those things because how many mm-hmm. you know, concerts yeah. have I played where I just think, oh man, I, I missed a few of those notes and I clip that and you know, and I afterwards yeah. I, people are like, oh, it was amazing, and I said, well, didn't you hear? Like in the middle, I had a small slip. Oh, well, I didn't notice it. You know, so yeah. that's that's one issue. I, I think most non musicians and not even musicians, like I would say, non pianists, uh, yes. might not notice those things. Uh, and then true. The idea that more knowledge or more insight into some of these things that we're going to discuss, I wonder if it gives us more enjoyment or less. And what I mean is, <laughs> you know, I'll go to a performance and of maybe a famous pianist, and, and I, I'm thinking of one in my mind right now of a piece I've performed, and it's with a big orchestra. And so I have all these expectations, and, and maybe it doesn't live up to those. And so yeah. I, I don't really, you know, get a lot out of it. I still get a lot musically and understand and kind of make my judgments. But I, I'm sure mm-hmm. there are some people in the, in the audience that just love the experience, you know? So that's it. And I think, and I think that's great. And I think it's still important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I was uh, interviewed a little while ago by uh, Leela Getz of the uh, Vancouver Recital Society. And I can't remember if it was during our interview or afterwards where she mentioned, you know, that a critic had once uh, had once, commented you know given a negative review and one of her subscribers wrote but i enjoyed the concert wasn't i supposed to <laughs> you know yeah. Yeah. I think it's important you know this this can be challenging and it is yeah. challenging for me because you know there are um 
I do get disappointed a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also get pleasantly surprised a lot. Yeah. Because there are, and this is one of the challenges nowadays. And I'll say that it's, uh, you know, I, w- I don't name names when I'm uh, talking about musicians who, you know, whose artistry I don't particularly appreciate as much as others. Uh, but I've noted, you know, I think in any industry, uh, acting, you know, uh, is a good example. You know, the, the box office big sellers aren't always the best. Mm-hmm. And there are always musicians who, like actors, everybody's been saying for ages, how come this person isn't getting more roles? They mm-hmm. are so good. How come they're not getting booked more? You know, and there's all these, all kinds of actors who finally got their break, you know, after a certain period. And a lot of musicians, it's the same thing. And they're getting C-list or B-list or maybe even less bookings. Yeah. And other people are, you know, filling up huge concert halls and the standard of playing actually really isn't objectively. And, you know, really when you pay attention, it, it's just not the same. Uh, Georges Bollette is a great example. You know, mm-hmm. he was 59 when he had his breakthrough Carnegie Hall recital in 1974. Mm-hmm. And he'd been on the concert circuit since he was, you know, in his like late 10 teens. or two or 12. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> At least. Uh, So, you know, and he played for a Hollywood movie in 1960 and uh, Mm -hmm. 1970 when he played at this International Piano Library benefit concert. That's when he just blew the roof off of the place. But it was still four years later. And then, you know, RCA recorded that concert. Then, boom, you know, he was launched into superstardom. And it's like, where, where, where's this guy been? It's like, he's been here the whole time. And for various reasons, he just wasn't. Uh, getting the attention. And I think that that's always the case. Yeah. So we don't live in a meritocracy and we never will. So No. And I, so this is why I also think it's important not to just go by name, mm-hmm. uh, where I will go hear musicians I haven't heard before. And I think it's important because you never know yeah. who you're going to hear and what you're going to hear and not, not to judge and not to prejudge. And mm-hmm. to also sometimes just go for the experience and, yeah. okay, I didn't like the performance as much and you know I get to applaud that's Beethoven. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, I think there's there's something to be said for for even um, you know uh, having being at a performance, being having the ability to distinguish a good performance from a bad one is not an unpleasant experience. <laughs> you know, it's 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 an experience that that maybe obviously you you prefer to see the the, the greats, but but uh, you know at some point having the ability to identify you know, what makes a good performance and what, you know, what, what could have been better, you know, that, that's part of the experience of seeing a live performance in yes. any genre. Mm-hmm. I agree. I do agree. So, but it's like everything, right? I think everything in life is a double-edged sword. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something that can, that can happen, right? Sometimes yeah. we are going to enjoy, we will be disappointed sometimes and we'll be pleasantly surprised and we'll be absolutely elated at other times. So yeah. it's kind of the territory. It's never all the same. Well, let's let's get into this a little bit and, and talk about the piano and let's talk about um, the the artist who plays pianos and and some of the things that that maybe a good artist is thinking about as as they play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe we can well, do an know, outline. I, first. I think it's yeah. sure. Or, yeah. Uh, so there's a, there's a number of different things like qualities of playing. Uh, 
are aspects of piano playing that I think we can pay attention to. And it's useful, I think, to describe a little bit. And then um, hopefully we'll be able to listen to some examples. And people can, you know, the great advantage of a podcast like this is they can go back and listen again and hear, hear those recordings again. Uh, but, you know, I'll just say to start off that I, I, I would like to keep the analogy of comparing it to an actor. Uh, because I, I think that it's use, it's a useful, um, it's a useful comparison at times. So if you think about, you know, you don't think that an actor has great technique because they said all of the words without making a mistake. So I think that this whole thing, oh, he has great technique, you know, and he, he played really fast and, you know, right. hit all the right. No, I mean, it's, it's preposterous that we think that that only is technique. And I tend to, and people use that as the general, you know, this all encompassing word for technique. I tend to break that down and say, okay, no, we're talking about digital precision, mm -hmm. right? When right. you're talking about that manual dexterity or, or actual like yeah. digital precision yeah. in terms of like, you know, the typewriter quality element to it. And like an artist's, you know, a, the, the actor was able to pronounce all of the words. Well, good for him. You know, you would expect that. And I think that shouldn't, that never really goes into question. But there's various elements with which they do this. And I can use a couple of, you know, more popular examples with this. Uh, if we think about tone, first of all, there's the voice and the resonance. You know, each actor will have their own timber to their voice and it's recognizable and you recognize maggie smith and uh alan rickman you know as snape i think a lot of these great actors were in harry potter movies uh and you know there are they were there's <laughs> yeah. there, there's that there's the tone of voice and there's the articulation and you know severus snape in those harry potter movies was perfect because articulation he was so exaggerated it but it brought out something in the character right and musicians as well when they're articulating the phrase they the way they clarify some notes and accent some notes or make some of them they they highlight a certain note by um, striking the key differently. That's the same thing. So if you imagine in general that a musical phrase, a melody that you might sing and that a pianist plays, and that might be that one phrase is like a sentence, how they shape that in the same way that an actor wouldn't just read the words to be or not to be, that is the question. Yeah. Uh, you know, that doesn't reveal anything, but it's like, no, how no is he inflection. actually shaping it with the with a tone of voice, exactly. So this inflection, so the articulation is one thing that adds to the inflection. Then the dynamics, are they getting louder? Or are they getting softer? Uh, how are they phrasing? That's part of the articulation. Is it fluid? Or is it, you know, do they break things up? Or part of the sentence is fluid? Do they pause between words uh, in a certain way? So their timing, uh, there's all kinds of other effects that pianists are able to do, hmm. I think that, and I think this is where, you know, the pedal comes in tone production. I believe that people tend to think that the piano has, well, the piano just has the piano sound and that's all there is. Yeah. But when you hear the really great pianists, there are so many different kinds of sounds that they produce and at different levels of softness or loudness, which we'll refer to as dynamics that, you know, the, the, the really good ones, it, it, it sounds like an orchestra. And in fact, Edwin Fisher, I, I, 
interviewed a, a pupil of Edwin Fisher's. He was a great he, Bach pianist who made the first ever recording of the well-tempered clavier in the 1930s. And he would tell his students, he's like, oh, your cellos are a little too soft. <laughs> That's brilliant. You know, to, to bring out a, and to imagine that, that certain sound, you know, if this were violins or if this was flute or if this was clarinet, you know, and the, the oboe and the clarinet and the flute would all be in the same registers, but they, you can intone, you know, get a different sound out of the instrument. So that is one of the big things that I think is, is really important. And, you know, the voicing in terms of it, which melody is louder uh, which notes are louder? What's the balance between notes? If you imagine two, three, or four people singing, uh, and you can think of any of your pop, you know, favorite pop bands as well. If you think about the balance between the different voices, and who do you hear first loudest, and who do you hear second loudest, and you don't want to hear one, but you don't hear the others. You want to hear this balance of them, mm -hmm. and that's something as well that really great pianists are able to do. They're able to bring in, you know, this balance between all of these uh, different notes that are all there, and make it sound actually like in an orchestra. You wouldn't confuse the cello with the oboe because you can hear they have a different sonority and that's really what a pianist has to do. And, and it's, it, it is so difficult on a piano because it is so subtle, because it is essentially the same instrument, mm -hmm. but, but to do that with your fingers and to do that with your body, yes. um, as Elias knows, is, is quite a feat to do that properly. Well, yeah. And I was also going to say, you mentioned that the piano sound is sort of ubiquitous or mon not monotone, maybe homogeneous sound. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think it's become more, like that in yeah. let's say the last 50 or 60 years um if we look 100 years ago at just how many types of pianos there were and absolutely and, uh, most of the you know uh the i guess what am i trying to say the um the things that have been invented i guess uh, the technique of the piano of the actual instrument you know there hasn't been mm -hmm. much invented in terms of the structure mm -hmm. in 150 years since list really but uh, there have been minor changes, but even uh, in his time, there's just such a great variety of tone across the registers in a single piano that we don't yes. have today because it's you know so many or so far fewer um, companies and whatnot. So I think that makes a this big is, difference. It absolutely does, and you know my specialty being historical recordings that were you know I'm primarily focused on ones that were made before 1950. You know a lot of those instruments come from the late 19, late 1800s into the early 1900s, and they were voiced differently. They mm. were constructed differently. You're hearing, um, you know, if you're listening just to Alfred Cortot, you're going to be hearing Playels, Blutners, and Steinways. Mm -hmm. You know, because he recorded on all three of those. Uh, and you hear certain musicians. And yet, uh, if we take an example, uh, you know, EMI's Abbey Road Studios from the 1930s onward, they had this incredible Steinway, uh, which I'd love to track down, number 299, hmm. apparently. That's what's written on the all the recording ledgers. Um, Corto recorded on it, Geza Anda, Dinu Lepadi, Beno Mosevich, Edwin Fisher. Arthur Schnabel, they all recorded on that piano. And it's hard to say how good it is, though, anymore, but still, I'm sure it has yeah, incredible qualities. It was incredible, but you can still hear the difference in tone mm -hmm. between those different pianists. Yeah, you can piano. recognize Corto and Lepati within three notes. 
they were so distinctive in their sonority, in their approach, and so on. So even though they were playing the very same instrument in the very same studio with the same engineers. Yeah, I was going to say that makes a difference too. What kind of sound are you going for? And the engineers have a certain idea they might want, um, you know, maybe a warmer sound. Or I know in Europe that at least nowadays, uh, maybe maybe it's becoming more again similar, but mm -hmm. uh, European recordings tended to be... Um, I think I'm getting this right, further back and just more of the mm -hmm. room and the U.S. recordings tended to be more in the piano, a little bit larger, um, maybe a little brighter. But um, yeah, maybe with them, it was the same engineer and still you can hear differences because of their interpretations. Yeah. And I, th I think that, you know, unfortunately, uh, we've heard since the tape era and, you know, heavily spliced recordings and miking and, you know, sticking the microphone inside the piano. I have no idea, you know, we've all, everybody's how natural it. is that? It is just completely ridiculous. Good, yeah. I have no idea why that became a thing, but it, I think it's created a very unnatural sound on the recording that people then don't get in concert. And then they are disappointed when they go to a concert that they can't hear it the way mm -hmm. they hear it at home. And yeah. so that, is, that starts to become an issue as well. So all of this being, you know, a roundabout way of, you know, leading into the sound of the instrument, but the sound that the individual brings to the instrument, I mm -hmm. think is something that is unique. And that's one of the amazing things of, you know, when we think about, you know, and some of the ones that I named there who recorded at Abbey Road, but if we just take uh, Lepati and Courteau, with both of them, a number of these qualities, tone, articulation, the pedaling, the timing, all of it is completely individual. And you can tell usually within five seconds uh, if it's one of those two artists. I would say Marcel Mayer as well, uh, who played a very light action Steinway that actually sounds more like a French piano, like a Playel or an Erard. Um, she's another artist whose sonority was so distinctive as well as other qualities of her playing that usually within five seconds, you can tell that she's the one who's at the keyboard. Well, and I think, I think Mark, uh, and, and maybe, you know, um, maybe speak to this just for a second. I, I, yeah. the, the piano is such a large instrument. Sometimes you can almost equate it to a, um, you know, a large speaker, you know? And so when an artist, somebody who knows what they're doing mm -hmm. um, plays that in my mind, what it does is it just, intensifies and and um amplifies you know yeah. just it, it, the, the the sound the in other words the, the, the it, it intensifies and, and dramatically increases the differences because of like if i if i'm if i'm speaking through a, a small speaker the difference between my voice and your voice may not be that because we don't have you don't have the full uh, you know eq quality and things like that but if i have a large speaker and i have large mm -hmm. and i have very nice equipment which mm -hmm. it, which modern pianos really are if you can, if you can play that, that just that tone um, pounces off the piano if you're doing it right. Mm -hmm. Well, it pounces off the piano if you're doing it wrong as well. But I guess that's a lot of people won't notice the difference. Hey, yeah. you know. <laughs> it, it exaggerates whatever you're doing. It's funny because we think of uh, like dynamics. Uh, I always get in this discussion with people. It's sort of a, dynamics are partly physics. You know, they're absolute dynamics. But our brain yes. doesn't really compute that, so we're we're listening more to uh, differentiation between dynamics, and it's a subjective measure. And so yes. I, I always tell people, you can actually play softer on a larger piano, and they're like, "Well, can't you just get a really small upright? Isn't that going to be softer?" 
I mean, you, maybe if you have a computer that that does that, but the control that you have with the longer key, the difference you know, between the loud and, and the, the difference soft between the loud and the soft, you know, you're you're going to process that, and you're going to have more control over that soft as well. So you actually have more dynamic range in the low red in the low end, the piano and pianissimo, pianissimo on a large nine foot grand than you do on, a, on an upright. So. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. There's one other thing, if you don't mind, before we go to the next. But you mentioned the the concept of you know miking a piano, which I think a lot of engineers are realizing, the good ones at least, that you can't just put a mic under the soundboard. Um, yeah. Luckily, I, I worked with one who's phenomenal, and he's very good at finding those balances. Uh, and he, uh, it is one thing when you listen to a recording and you hear that, that soloist, for example, with the concerti, and it's always very clear. And then you go to a concert hall, which maybe doesn't have the best acoustics, maybe not the best piano, maybe not the greatest yep. pianist. And you often don't hear the solo parts. And it's like, wow, what's, what's going on? I always wish uh, orchestras played a little softer in those, those sections with the soloist. But it's just such a different experience from the live, um, from is. the recording. And it's probably like pop bands, too. And I, I they are similar in this regard but then a little different too pop bands you know you hear a great recording which has been eq'd by an, an engineer or 10 engineers and it's just everything's perfect it's auto-tuned everything's been synced up then you go mm. hear them live and eh, they can't really sing they can't really dance they can't really play it's, it's often quite disappointing um yeah so. I mean, it's it also the overall experience, and this is where I, you know, I do think recording engineering has messed things up in terms of this aim for clinical perfection. Mm -hmm. uh, I was lucky enough to go to a Montreal Symphony Orchestra recording in, I believe it was the late 80s, when mm -hmm. we recorded uh, <clears throat> La Mer and the Nocturnes of Debussy. And I could not believe, I was in the recording booth, I was trying to keep very still, and the engineer, the lead engineer, followed in the score and called out the instruments that were about to come in, and his assistant boosted the mic levels Preach. for every group of instruments because each section was separately mic'd. And I'm thinking, what's yeah. the conductor's job? Yeah, to make those balances. Right? To make those balances. So basically, the conductor's doing his balance, and they're doing what they're, they're imposing their balance in terms of what should be brought forward. Mm -hmm. But what you're hearing is this layering of these different levels as opposed to this blend that you would actually hear in the concert hall. Mm -hmm. So again, people are being trained to hear things at home that they would not hear at the concert hall. And then they mm -hmm. go to the concert hall and say, well, it just sounds like a bit of a mess. And it's like, well, actually, that mess is kind of a little bit closer, probably. Uh, it's not a mess, it's a blend. And, uh, you you know, like Starbucks, and yeah, it's yeah. a, it's this is the this is the flavor actually that the composer wanted. He wanted that blend. He didn't want everything, you know, the one flute to stand out above the whole orchestra because it's not possible. It's supposed to be at a different level, sort of blended right. in. So, so I and the same thing has happened with the piano. You know, where it's uh, there's been an exaggerated sound. Uh, the instruments have become more streamlined and brighter and clangier as i'm sure you you know you've <laughs> observed yourself uh and it's not at all the same sound as you know even 50 years ago let alone 70 or 100 where <laughs> you know it was very very different and you did hear a large variety of instruments here it wasn't just steinway and the steinways yeah. then were different of course you know in new york steinways and hamburg steinways you could hear the difference sure. uh, then there was playels and erards and baldwins and blutners and well that's a whole other part of artistry is the building of the piano yes you know? yeah, yeah. And that's a whole that's, 
But a great artist will be able to, you know, on whatever instrument, you know, Lepati's last recital was recorded on a gavot. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't think it was a great instrument or particularly well recorded, but uh, you can still hear the genius on that less ideal instrument. And there's a lot of recordings of great pianists in, you know, private circumstances and so on, playing on instruments that were less than ideal, and they still do amazing things. All right. Well, I would love to maybe talk about and hear some examples of, mm-hmm. of this tone that you're talking about that the people should be listening for when you're, mm-hmm. as we've been describing it. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. So uh, let, let's talk this out a little bit. Elias, what do you think? <laughs> There's, I was wondering, like, uh, we could listen to Cortot's sound, uh, Hoffman, Marie LaJonas. Uh, what, what what do you feel like listening to? I, I always, I think Cortot's so different mm-hmm. from what we, I mean, Hoffman, it's like the yeah. pianists of pianists at that time, but it, it's mm-hmm. almost more modern. In a way, yes. um, Jonas, I, I'll be honest, I don't know as well. I've, I've heard of okay. Courtois, I know quite well, and I think he's a wonderful artist. And I think so, if, if maybe if we yeah. could do something where, where maybe we compare maybe Hoffman to somebody else, I think that might be mm-hmm. so people can hear like the difference of what you're talking about. Yeah, sure. Let's let, let, let me let me pull up a Courtois recording. Yeah. And um, I think what I would like to find is... Uh, Here's one of him actually playing Bach, which is a bit unusual for him, oh. but it's where you really get the, his rich singing sound. And I'd like you to imagine, you know, when I hear Corto, I hear like there's a mahogany richness to it. And there's almost like he brings up this, there's this oaky whiskey kind of flavor with cigar, with cigar smoke swirling around. Like there's this real, like a throaty richness. You're priming us. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. yeah. Like a- so, so if you think about though, that, you know, a certain actor who has, you know, perhaps more resonance in the, you know, in the voice, like I'm just exaggerated a little bit there. That's the kind of quality that I hear in Corto's rich singing sounds. So let, let's listen to him playing a bit of an arrangement of the slow movement of Bach's F minor concerto. That's, you know, it's amazing because you can feel, you can hear that um, he's definitely, you know, playing it so 
quiet in the in that left hand part, but you could feel the robustness and the real like girt that is that is sitting there. It's really something. Mm-hmm. Um, Elias, as a as a pianist, uh, you know, since you're a pianist, I'm really curious what your impression is just listening to that. Yeah, I, I, it's it's awesome, and I'm trying. Actually, Mike, you just said some amazing things, <clears throat> you know, and I think uh, some of your experiences to performing, you probably recognize that that left hand. Uh, the rich, the bass is still rich for me, uh, but it's mm. it, it's still the. Um, the piano sounds almost hollow. I mean, I always envision him as like a ghost-like figure. So I think anytime I hear his recordings, I think it's this ethereal being. Mm-hmm. But he does he does so, such weird things. I mean, wonderful things also with the timing and the placement of notes yeah. and how he brings yeah. out this melodic line, often breaking rules that I even tell my students. You know, after a long note, you listen through the long note yeah. and the next note can't be an accent. Well. He breaks that occasionally, yeah. But very, very small places where it kind of goes up again, mm-hmm. and and then kind of floats, almost does this. Uh, what what Stephen Huff likes to call the Russian crescendo, da 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 da, and then kind of hovers around that. <laughs> right. Um, I, I, instead of what we always teach, you know, da 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 da, it's da 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 da, and then comes back yeah. around. But it's really free, yeah. very free playing. But I mean, there is so much to unpack there because Corto had this whole thing with timing where you just can never, you know, if you try to sing along with him, you'll start to notice, whoa, what did he just do with the timing there? Because he yep. just, he sort of, I thought he was going to go right and he went left. Yeah. Uh, but, but the sonority, uh, since yeah. that's kind of what we were like, do you, do you get what I mean by that oaky mahogany kind of like reverberant throaty kind of richness? It's, it's, it's hard to describe, but it's, there's something so penetrating. Mm, about yeah. his sound but there's never any harshness it's not harsh, there's yeah. no edge to it right no it's not it's, it is it is smooth like if if you're to describe this as you know i don't drink but if you're to describe this as like a whiskey or a wine like it is mm-hmm. smooth <laughs> yeah yeah that's exactly it um and so you know that's the, the, that's one of the you know he he's somebody who you know i i remember giving an introduction in a uh, presentation on an introduction to historical recordings to people who had zero training in music. And I played a whole bunch of great pianists. You know, I had Lepati and Mayer and so on. And the first note of Corto, you can see everybody's eyes opened up. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, okay, there, there's something here. Like they they got it. Well, yeah. and there's so much there that, that I know we'll talk about. I mean, cause we're kind of, uh, you know, dissecting some of these pieces, mm-hmm. but like the voicing just makes that whole piece work so yeah. well. Mm-hmm. And and as you mentioned, the timing and that's just you know it, it is it's it's this, it's it's an artist it, you know Lisa I think I talked to you about this one time about you know the idea of what makes one person doing something cheesy and the other mm. person doing it art yeah. and you know it, it really is half yeah. has to do with intention it has to do with like communication um, and 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 being able to make it make it work in in the in the scope of of um, of that piece. And it's, that, that's pretty brilliant. I stuff. think being organic yeah. about it and being internally consistent. So there are things that Horowitz does and things that Courtaud does here that I don't think would be really mm-hmm. allowed today. Although starting, I think there, there are some factions yeah. in the piano world that are opening up a lot to information and freedom. I agree. Um, completely. 
but yeah. and you know one of I think one of my teachers his kind of legacy is is doing part of that and we can talk about but um I I think with Courtois or Horowitz some of the, mm-hmm. th- the things they do if anybody did it today I would just say it's it's imitation it's cheesy it's corny and uh, doesn't work but when yes. they do it somehow you know it's it's okay Horowitz can do the D sharp minor uh, etude and take all sorts of rhythmic liberties and I don't care yes <laughs> you know. Yeah, I know. Well, part of it's the ownership, though, right? So it's not yes. just what they're doing, and this is, and this is also a little bit of, you know, it's it's so hard for us to focus on one thing because I think yeah. we're so excited about all of this. Yeah. Is that you know, I, I I articulated all of those different qualities, and the fact is, they're doing all of them, and that's yeah. what makes it special. Yeah. So you know, when Horowitz does those timing things in that Scriabin etude. It's not just the timing, though. Yeah, and we hear the timing. And that's exactly it. And that was something that Stephen Huff really articulates very well. And that when, you know, young pianists now, they try to imitate Corto's rubato or Friedman's yeah. rubato or something. That's they're listening it. on that one axis <laughs> of that speed, but they're not adjusting the tone or the pedaling or the dynamics and all of that. They were doing where they were creating a multidimensional effect by working with different elements mm-hmm. at the same time. So as they were slowing down, they're getting softer, or as they're speeding up, maybe they're getting louder. You know, that's just two yeah. very simple examples, right. but adjusting the actual tone and the pedaling and the phrasing, maybe the articulation. So they do all of those different things at the same time. So it's not just a very simple faster, slower, yeah. even though that might be just what we really notice in the moment yeah and and it's good for students to try to imitate maybe one of those aspects or axes but you you have to make it with the other things other otherwise it sort of just sounds uh forced or concocted not organic and uh it it just much more experimentation i think mark you used the perfect word it's about ownership like are you owning your art are you are you taking ownership in the sound that you're providing to the audience and and you know i think that's something that you know, any artist needs to just be acutely aware of is, is you know, the sound that you're producing um, is, is really impacting how the audience feels. And mm-hmm. if, 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 it, if you don't have that kind of, um, you know, a, a subtlety, if you will, um, it, 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 it's going to come, come across as, as not authentic. That's it. And that's where, you know, the, the imitating you know, and just copying or just saying, oh, well, he does this or he, he, he you know, hits his bass notes like this and I'm going to try that. I mean, certainly in the 1950s, you know, there was this whole ream of uh, piano students trying to imitate Horowitz. Mm-hmm. It, was, uh, you know, it was a very big thing. And I think that, uh, you know, it's unfortunate because I think people have held him up as an example of romantic pianism when he was an example of very individual playing, but yeah. he wasn't the most, uh, I think, the the quintessential sort of yeah the quintessential exactly romantic pianist i think right. uh, george Ballet in many ways was more in shura Cherkasky and uh, perhaps a few mm. other ones mm-hmm. yeah Sh- shall we listen to um i was thinking maybe we could listen to marcel mayer just to get a bit of a contrast yes. in terms of sonority fantastic uh and i thought we'd listen to her play a little bit of rameau and there, again there's so much that we can unpack just with you know i was thinking of using her as an example for phrasing and for pedaling mm-hmm. and for ornamentation articulation but uh let's just listen to her tone as well and i think mm-hmm. again uh i think even a novice listening to these two pianists side by side would really notice hey there's something a little bit different in the sound just like you would 
in hearing an actor's voice. So let's listen to her play a little bit of Ramo. I don't know that piece actually. It's so beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. But I mean, what's amazing is, you know, you think that's Rameau, but it doesn't sound like that's music that's 300 years old because she plays it with such vibrancy and freshness and vitality and rhythmic aliveness. Yeah. Um, And that's partly, you know, her phrasing and the fact that, you know, she does trills that don't break the line that actually they're more are melodic fluid they're part of the melodic line so yeah. that's that story and then there's that tone of hers that is i how would i'm curious how both of you would describe that well there, there's a lot of energy to that tone in my mind like it's it's mm-hmm. it's um from from what i hear um it's more eager it's more um it, it has more um, it, do, it doesn't have that mahogany sound that you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. I guess it's more of more brassy in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and also, and I think that goes a lot to, to, as you mentioned her, her, you know, rhythm like that, obviously the pieces are far, are, are very different, but you can hear a definite artist pulse in both of those pieces. And you can hear how the, the pulse of the artist, and, and I don't even know how to describe that right. But it, it's 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 a it's a certain rhythmic energy that I think every unique individual has, and you can kind of hear that in, in 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 a unique way that both of these people you know provide. Yeah, yeah, that's that's that ownership and that character and the individuality where they weren't holding themselves back, and that's I think something that's you know that we've been. I think that we discussed last time, right, in terms of like the individuality and in performance, and uh, not just trying to produce this anonymous performance, but actually bringing your heart and soul into the playing. And Corto and Mayer did that in very different ways with a very different sound as well. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it'd be curious to hear them play, obviously, you know, the same piece and, yeah. and the same setting and see how they would approach it. Um, I, mm-hmm. I definitely, well, before I talk about what I felt, and I think Mike basically said some great things, um, I do want to address the, uh, maybe assuage some of the fears that listeners might have that, look, the three of us are, you know, experts in our field. You know, we're, we're musicians and we listen to this stuff. But by the same mm-hmm. token, a lot of it is, is subjective. So maybe we'll say something that uh, I liked X, Y, Z, and somebody listening would be like, gosh, you know, I really liked W, R, and T a lot better. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, well, is my opinion, you know, not as valid? Not, not necessarily, but th- there are some objective things that we're list- trying to listen for and, and point out. Mm-hmm. But also by mm-hmm. the same token, those things change. So maybe somebody mm-hmm. teaching a student in the 1920s might have said, you know, you need to be listening more for this kind of whatever. And nowadays we're, we're teaching slightly differently and we're having ex- different expectations. So just, just to kind of put that out there as a, as a disclaimer, um, Excellent. Yes. But then also yeah, to, to say about her playing that it, yeah, it just had so much energy, so much movement. And what I liked is that the, the voices, I mean, it's a type of piece, but both voices were very clear and distinct. But I didn't feel that one was, um, I, I heard them simultaneously clear. And it wasn't like one was overpowering or one was accompanying the other. It was balanced. Um, yeah. It was very well balanced and things were brought out when they needed to be, when they were moving. Uh, mm-hmm. So the line just kept going and I didn't feel a sense of, okay, well, this I kind of lost what's going on there. You know, she just mm-hmm. keeps your, keeps your interest, draws your ear back into the, into the piece. You know, what, how would you describe her tone? A little bit more hollow, uh, uh, to mm-hmm. be honest, and maybe it's just coming over the mic. It's not as as vo- voluminous, you know, like overarching mm-hmm. rich. I think partly it's the type of piece. Uh, the re- their yeah. range is a little bit smaller. Um, it's not mm-hmm. harsh, though, which I like. It still has a lot of energy with, without being harsh. So Yeah, I, I would describe her sound as having, it's almost glass-like. Mm-hmm. And so there's a kind of, uh, you know, you said grassy, I, I say glassy. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I um, say brassy, but that's okay. Okay, well, oh. that too. <laughs> I like that. Um, but, you know, th- there is this almost crystalline quality to her sonority yeah. uh, that I think is, is, again, and it, it works. And it can work, and she, and f- you know, she does sound different, you know, when she's playing Ravel, that, you know, the, the crystalline sound that she brings out, I think, works more successfully than I think a lot of the different, you know, the, uh, the ways that a lot of people play with Elf and and she worked with him personally as well. But, uh, but yeah, I, I find that her sound, there's this transparency to it. So the glass is sort of like, there's the shine to it, but there's also the transparency where you hear all the layers. um, But there's also this smoothness and the way that, glass would be polished uh each note is smooth and also each phrase is smooth and that's something i love that there's this contour as well always with how she shapes and how she voices that um it's just so it's just sounds very very natural and i think and I think and we talked about this, but I, I want to just re-emphasize the fact that, this, that a lot of people could say, well, that's a different piano, different recording, mm-hmm. different music. You know, there's a lot of things that go into it. But I, I, I want to say we're talking about, you know, um, like definite 
qualities of, of almost personality. And, and, mm-hmm. and probably a good example is, is um, I was, uh, I've told Elias a story where, where um, I was playing in my church one time mm-hmm. and, and one of my students was visiting and they didn't know I was playing. They had no, they couldn't see me. And I was just playing like some prelude music before it started. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they said, Oh, that's Mr. Mike playing. You know, they just knew right off hand that it was me. And I think mm-hmm. that's, that's, they never heard that piano. They don't, they've never been in that, in that building. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about. It's, it's the voice that's of stamp. the artist that's coming through that's the it. sound. Right. Yeah. That's it. And that's sort of what I was naming that, you know, you can recognize Corto in five notes and Mayer in yes. five notes. And I thought we'd listen to maybe some Dinu Lipati now, yeah. Yeah. you know, and you can yeah. recognize him as well in five notes. And again, yes, there, there's the different pieces uh, that they're playing in the different pianos. Um, you know, I've, I did a video for the Ross McKee foundation where I, had three different pianists playing the opening of Chopin's Nocturne Opus 9, number two. And I've actually done a podcast where I have five pianists uh, playing that piece. And, you know, so those five pianists playing the same piece of music, and you absolutely can hear the difference, not just in, in speed, but also in, in, in tone and in approach and, mm-hmm. you know, dynamics and the, the timing of things and the way that, again, you know, one actor will intone to be or not to be or to be or not to be, you know, or they, they'll accent it in a different way, even though it's the same words on the page and it's the same notes on the page for the musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there'll be a, that slight difference. Yeah. Um, so which, yeah, which so piece the, by Lepati are you going to I was I was thinking maybe uh, since we're, we're we're kind of seem to be in the Baroque era, but I thought maybe just oh, to keep Bach. that level consistent, let's do a little bit of Bach. And I thought we'd play uh, one of the minuets from the uh, first Partita, one of his famous uh, final recordings before he died. And I mean, there's a, again, there's a lot to unpack with his playing. You're going to hear it's a lot crisper the way he's doing things, but you're also going to hear a, a, a different kind of sound as well, I think. So let's just listen to a minute of Lepati. think people realize just how crazy that was i just I, I listened to him when i was i performed this piece like five years ago six years ago but mm-hmm. what he does uh, with holding some of the voices and still keeping the articulation i know tone is one of the things main things we're talking about but they all go hand in hand but wow yeah. to to bring out the melody notes i don't know if people have seen the score for this uh but to to connect the melody notes the main melody notes because the uh, repeating some or the pinky in some cases uh, that's that's not brought out, but the moving line in the melody is and keeping the left hand staccato 
Uh, I, wow, he, I don't think he used much pedal at all. In no, that. it's that. No, that performance is utterly mind blowing. Yeah, people yeah. don't know and, how hard, and it they is they don't know how mind blowing it is because yeah. it's not like Ravel's Albora del Gracioso, like that wild, crazy right. virtuoso piece that he recorded. But that it, that it requires so much technique to be able to do what he's doing there because he plays like the metrical precision, the absolute art, the articulation and the evenness of each note has exactly the same touch. Yeah. Um, and then he brings out the syncopation in the left hand. That's just like, I think it's in the left hand. Um, you know, he, he, he syncopates the mm -hmm. stuff that just comes out of nowhere that you hear all of a sudden you hear this extra syncopated thing while you hear that fluid phrasing in the main melody. And it's, it's, absolutely it, stunning yeah it's it, because of what's going on in the mind too what he just did is is yeah it, like you could hear a uh second hungarian rhapsody by list and it would be impressive but not like this almost blows me away more because yeah. of how difficult it is what he's doing and it sounds mm -hmm. so simple um yeah and the tone is well, so even you know everything's yeah. controlled but it's but it's always that beautiful tone, and that's the thing where there's never a there's not an edge. There's not an edge, and just to use an example, like vocally, to give people an example. So you know, if I was talking, and then all of a sudden, you know, I I, I like you know this this word comes out louder and breaks the phrase like that, you know, like all of a sudden there's this accent and it's, you know, it's no longer a smooth sentence like the one that I'm speaking now where, you know, there's there's this natural sense that fits with the shape of the words. Yeah. Uh, he just keeps that so consistent, which is much harder to do in an instrument where you have different fingers mm -hmm. in the same way that, you know, your words, you're putting all of these different words together in English. You do not separate the words like that so much when you're speaking naturally. And that's what's mm -hmm. so hard for a musician where you have these different keys and these different fingers that are working together. And to be able to have that fluidity and consistency of sound when there are so many different sounds that are capable. Uh, that you're capable of producing that's it's absolutely stunning stunning mm -hmm. music making. it's yeah it mike, mike have you heard that you i mean you know the I piece i have not heard that okay and, I, and that's i mean i've heard that piece but i've yeah. not heard that particular version and wow that was yeah. that was impressive and um yeah it, it, it's like a um like a fine clockmaker you know, mm -hmm. where you just want to watch the gears turn. Yeah, yeah. It's so beautiful oh, that you just want to see it turn and turn and, and do its thing. It's just, it really is amazing. And, and, and like you said, with the, 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 the phrase, the phraseology, like you never miss, it, it, to say a beat, you never miss a phrase. You never mm -hmm. miss you never where miss the beat. line is going and, and what's kind of holding the whole line up. It's just, it's just magnificent. Yeah. Yeah. cathartic yeah. You no know, it's uh you know and that's one of the thing, reasons why i mean he was such a genius and and just to point out that you know even if listeners who are less able to articulate what they're hearing or maybe aren't as trained i do think when you hear that level that quality i think a lot of people will catch it and i have a pretty interesting a uh, story about that when I, I used to work uh, at the ANA record store back when there were record stores in Montreal uh, in the late 80s when uh, CDs first started coming out hmm. and the Lapati CDs arrived uh, the first 
publication on CD of that recording mm. uh, arrived uh, while I was working there, and I put one on, and I put on his performance of Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring, which mm. you know is a beautiful piece of music that's very familiar. Every single person in the shop came up to see what was playing, mm-hmm. and we, they sold out the seven copies of the CD that we had before the three and a half minute piece was finished. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and this is when the CDs were $30 back then, yeah, which is which about is... $90 now. Yeah. That's yeah, amazing. And they just sold out because it was so and everybody, everybody could hear there's something going on. There's something different. Yeah. There's something different. And that was, he apparently had that mystique and Nadia Boulanger who taught, you know, all of the pretty much all of the great musicians of the second, you know, the middle of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said it was, you know, he was completely unique in that way that yeah. as soon as he walked on stage, you know, everybody was held in his thrall. And, uh, and th- there is that magnetism to his playing. And I think with all of these great artists, that mm-hmm. is part of it. And that's that ownership, in a sense, that I was speaking to. You know, where Horowitz, he was there doing his thing as him. And that's what Corto was doing. And that's what mm-hmm. Lepati was doing. And that's what Mayer was doing. But we can still listen to all of these different elements of their playing, the tone and the phrasing and the articulation and uh you know, the the clarity with which they bring out this note more than that note or so on. And those of us who are musically trained can, you know, have our little inner jumpy claps when we hear, you know, yeah. these incredible yeah. nuances, like, oh my God, how did Lepati bring out those, you know, that syncopation and so on. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I think that, you know, the more people are exposed to this kind of fine playing, they do automatically start to weed out that which is not at the same standard. Mm-hmm. I do think it happens. And I, I've noticed that as well when I, when I was doing regular, um, you know, shortly after I started my Facebook page, I started having regular soirees uh, in Vancouver and people would come over and we'd listen and they weren't that well trained. And I, you know, but I started off with all of the greats and they started listening and, you know, articulating. And I remember after a few sessions, I played a couple of artists who were, you know, more known, but not as refined. And they absolutely articulated, oh, well, he sounds a little bit more brusque or, oh, she sounds a bit emotionally detached. And they were really hearing those qualities. And I think it's just a matter of exposure to, you know, musicians. Once you hear musicians like this, Mm -hmm. you start to listen, I think, a bit differently. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. I really think you're right. And, and, and that's why we're doing this episode because I want some educated listeners out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think listeners want to, they want to be able to pay attention because it's hard, right? I mean, we, you know, we listen to music, really it's unfamiliar is. and we're there and we're, you know, we're sitting and focusing in a way that, you know, our brains are not wired in the same way anymore. Cause you know, we used to in the pre-internet age, be able to focus on things I think a bit differently. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's great when we can start to listen. And even if we're not, you know, there yet, or we're not able to articulate it at the very least, you know, the attempt and the interest and so on. I think this is something that's so important. Mm-hmm. And so I just think again, you know, just exactly what you're saying, Elias, before, you know, for people not to be concerned if they, you know, they hear it differently or they don't like, they don't like what we like or what that's all totally fine. Right. I think mm-hmm. it's just a matter of at the very least, you know, trying and listening and experimenting and uh, I think supporting the arts. Yeah. yeah, 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 and and Absolutely. go listen to you know take another recording. There are so many available of this first partita, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and listen to just the differences amongst them. And you know sometimes the greats do get weeded 
I mean, they, they rise to the top, the cream, cream rises to the top. Not always. Um, there, yeah. there are many other things that make careers, you know, luck and just certain qualities. You mentioned, um, you mentioned uh, Bolette, you know, yeah. he, I didn't never knew him. I knew people that knew him, but uh, yeah. he was not always the easiest person. And I'm sure yeah. there are other things in his, in his life that didn't uh, give him the career that he wanted. And a lot of people that have yeah. potential, maybe they become bitter. We all become a little bit bitter when we don't get what we think we deserve. Yes. But, um, yeah. you know, then, then he did end up making it quite big. Um, yes. So, you know, there, there are different ways to come by fame and they're not That's always, right. <laughs> it's not always great to be famous either. So, that's right. And and also fame is not necessarily what everybody's path is. And it doesn't mean that they can't be, you know, doing whatever they're doing within their sphere of influence and being an absolutely stunning musician. And yeah. I think, you know, we've all come across that there are, you know, absolutely some world-class musicians who are not playing in world-class circumstances. Right. And I don't think it necessarily diminishes what they're doing. You know, right. they're doing what they're doing and they're doing right. their artistry and that's still important. And that's yeah. where I think it's, you know, I still always want to, I want to support local musicians. I want to mm -hmm. support whomever. I don't want to just go hear A-listers. Right. Um, you know, and I think that's important. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's important. Yeah. That's Absolutely. cool. Gosh, I wish we could Shall just we... sit around and listen to all this stuff, but maybe can we listen to one or two more things? And, yeah, uh, I was wondering about Solomon. I've got one recording of Solomon's where I think he creates sounds that I've never heard anybody else do that I perfect. think are kind of it's kind of cool. And it's a really short little piece by De Severac, uh, which is okay. it, <clears throat> uh, it's où l'on entend une vieille boîte à musique, or it's kind of listening to an old musical box. box. Yeah. And it really, it really sounds like a musical box. And here there's the sound that he's producing, but I think there's also, if you want to listen to the pedaling and the fact that as the way he's pedaling, you hear this aura, like there's this glow. So you sort of imagine almost if there's dim lighting, but then there's this glow coming from this lamp or this fire. But the glow is always there, but the notes never get all mushed together. So there's still the clarity while there's the glow. I just have no idea how he's doing this. I'm and curious it's to hear absolute this. magic. So. I've usually just heard his Chopin and Beethoven, so this will be cool. He held the pedal at the end for a long time too through those chords, and it was still clear enough. I don't know if he was uh, fluttering it a bit. 
I mean, it must have been fluttering the whole time. I mean, it's just Probably. unbelievable because yeah. there's that consistent, there's that consistent, consistent haze. Yeah, but there's also the clarity, and it's yeah. absolutely mind mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. It, it almost seems like it's a commercial. I mean, it's just this old, you know, RCA commercial, whatever that uh, on the old TV, and it's the orchestra mm-hmm. that's playing. I don't know. It's, it really oh, sounds like a music box. Like a, I was, I, yeah, yeah, I was actually going to use the word nostalgia. I mean, that yeah. word that is just it. It just it feels kind of far away, but close to your heart. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's not incredible. Yeah, that's that amazing beautiful. playing. Um, I've actually got a recording of Marilla Jonas playing a different kind of music, uh, another music box piece. Oh, sure. And it's interesting because she doesn't pedal in quite the same way. It's a different composition, but you also hear, you know, that beautiful crystalline tone. And again, it's also magic. And she does, she does a different effect with the timing as well towards the end to really give a musical box uh, effect. So what do you think? Shall we listen? Yeah. To yeah. 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 What a brilliant piece. I don't know if all of that is written in a score with how she did the retard at the end. So cool. Isn't that amazing? Just like the musical amazing. box unwinding. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. It's brilliant. So my so also, Oh, go ahead. No, I, well, I was just going to say that, you know, there's a similarity between those two pieces, but she, she still creates that gentle glass-like sound like Solomon did, but she, she's using the pedal, but not to create a haze. And mm-hmm. so what's, it's so, the performances are so different. Yeah. Even though they have that same intent and they're both so wonderful. You really hear a lot of the melody. And I don't know if that D or G, I guess, kept kind of ringing out, but there's the, the right mm-hmm. hand has so much bell-like quality to it. Um, and it mm-hmm. reminded me, my grandmother used to have this old, my Bobby had a phone holder 
which uh, I'm sure you've seen these, the music box where you set the the old cord phone, corded phones from the wall uh, in there and it <laughs> right. plays the music box. And I used to go over and always wind that up and yeah, it gets slow at the end. So you can have to take it go fast. Mm -hmm. But that's, I mean, well, like, talk about nostalgia and, and uh, just a great, yeah. What, what a great uh, manner in which I she played. Another it's, great thing to point out with that piece is, is her technique with her left hand, as far as like just such, oh, yeah. such beautiful control. I mean, mm -hmm. being able to to make sure that that never gets in the way of, of what the intent is, and yet still it has to be part of that music box. It's just it's yep. just brilliant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, right. actually, I just thought we maybe we could listen to another perform per like her playing something else, just to show that you know again the same artist can produce different sonorities because there's um, a recording I actually shared on my Facebook page today of her playing a Mendelssohn song without words. Maybe you can just listen to the first minute or so. And what you're going to hear, she has a much more robust, deep sound. And she voices, you know, if you try to sing along, and this is something I suggest that listeners do a lot, you know, once you get a, once you get a grip of what the melody is, try singing along. And you'll then notice where their timing and where the, you know, getting louder or softer or any of those kinds of particular nuance techniques that the pianist and any musician can bring where they start doing that because you, you might just probably sing in more of a steady rhythm and then you'll notice oh she went slower there or faster <laughs> right. so she does some things here where her timing and the way when she has repeated notes which one gets louder and which one's mm -hmm. louder and softer it is absolute mastery so yeah. we'll listen to her play a little bit of this song without words
Isn't that extraordinary? Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And and you're right. There's definitely you can tell it's a it's a different piece. It's a different you know everything about that piece is different, and yet you really do feel her um, delicacy, even when it gets you know kind of broader and bigger. Like you can feel that it it, it she keeps like that tight like a streamer on a wind current or something. It's just it's mm-hmm. so nice. Yeah. And yet I find that one of the things she does, you know, I think people think for something to be sensitive or, you know, emotional, that it has to get softer. Mm-hmm. And that that's something, you know, like we hear in Chopin nocturnes and especially in Chopin music in general, where, you know, there's this kind of anemic quality that's crept into piano playing now where, oh, if we're being sensitive, we can't be loud. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, there's moments where she gets quite loud when she's bringing out this climax, but it's still so sensitive and it's delicate mm-hmm. still even though there's more volume. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I think is, you know, the absolute mastery of her playing where the contours are still there. The phrasing is so fluid that when she, she builds up, it's never jarring because it's always done with such control and elegance and she brings it right back down. Yeah. It's like a paradox is always, I, I, a couple of students where I've gotten to teach, you know, really high level students. And we get into almost these philosophical discussions of, what does the music say? What do you want to do with it? And is that actually physically possible? And in a way, no, but that's part of the struggle. And that then becomes the way you make music. And, and there are all these paradoxes that great artists, I, I feel that they sort of solve them in, in a way. Um, and she seemed to solve some of those. So that's great brilliant. Yeah. yeah. There's that tension. To, yeah. That's, that's a great way to say it. Solving those problems. That's, yeah. yeah. I mean, she, and you know, her, that recording was out of print for 70 years, 60 years, mm-hmm. probably the, the, the her re- complete recordings are reissued together for the first time ever. Mm. I mean, they were never wow. out mm. as a set. They were released once on LP in the 1950s. That was it. Mm-hmm. Wow. And now you can get by, you know, 25 bucks on Amazon. Boom. There you go. Four CDs. And you have this magic. I mean, we are living really at an incredible time yeah, yeah. when these things are available. And when you can go, you know, these labels actually put the whole official playlist on YouTube. So you can actually just go and listen there. Although, you know, of course I suggest, uh, you know, get the this is something I would want to own. I, I, yeah. I mean, this is really the set of her recordings is one of the, greatest most important and most historical releases of the last 20 years if not the last 50 years the fact that these are out uh she recorded about an hour or so worth of chopin mazurkas that are just every note is just so jaw-dropping uh what she does in every phrase it's uh it's mind-blowing and you know how many other great artists are out there you know Mm -hmm. from that era as well as you know nowadays we never know who's out there who's playing as well with such magic so yeah yeah important to go here yeah that's amazing wow gosh we could go uh all night listening to so many i <laughs> could i know is there anyone do you uh, think i know yeah i know right <laughs> uh, well we, could, we kind of i think we kind of mushed everything I think together you're right we so did, much, yeah. uh, that's why i'm glad i gave that quick introduction to all of them before so as i think we can sort of uh, get an idea uh what do you think about some friedman um, yeah, I was going to say, sure. it'd be nice to hear some, yeah, Friedman Hoffman, but I, I love Friedman, just his uh, mazurkas. The, I know we touched on last time you were here, 
um, that yeah. he had danced uh, mazurkas, and also I forgot the other pianist that you mentioned, another Polish pianist, I Jan, think, Jan, Jan Smetterlin, yeah, was, yeah. Okay, who had also danced maybe a different style. I know there are a few styles yes. of mazurkas, and That's just right. to, when I first heard Friedman, I was a master's student um, in Maryland, and um, at the time, actually, I had a professor with some uh, class on interpretation, and then he, he became ill, unfortunately, great guy. And then um, mm. who took over was Donald Manildi from oh, wow. uh, iPad. So he was our teacher for that semester. And he brought in the Friedman recordings mm -hmm. of the Mazurkas. And I never heard them played like that. So Yeah, nobody has. I, just, I <laughs> lost <laughs> sense of time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you do lose sense of time, like, quite literally, almost because what he's doing, it's like, is that is that three, four, really? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's uh, Fried Friedman is really uh, a dimension unto himself. Yeah. And he also recorded, uh, you know, he recorded famously uh, that series of mazurkas, and he also recorded some Mendelssohn songs mm. without words okay. that are very, you know, similar as well. Uh, he. Uh, he, they were they were both Polish actually both Jonas and uh, and 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 Friedman as oh, well, okay. um, but very different approaches as well to the mazurkas and so on. And that's the thing that's wonderful as well. I love them both, mm -hmm. even though they play so differently. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I think that's what's really important. That's the magic think, right there. I think that's the and that is the magic because it's like oh wow, I love the way he does that, and I love the way she does that. Yeah. And it's just and I don't have to choose one. You know, like we're so lucky and that's the thing with art. Yeah. There is no number one. And this is one of the things I can't stand when I see, you know, the yeah. top 10 list of whatever piano, whatever's uh, that, you know, these magazines and websites love to do because yeah. it's always, you know, well, so, what, about, what about the 11th yeah. <laughs> you know, right too, and the 20th and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah. um, well, do you think we should hear, uh, you know, there's so much with Friedman. Uh, I mean, there's that incredible nocturne. Uh, that he recorded, which is one of the greatest ever. There's mazurkas, there's Mendelssohn. Um, I, I would go for a mazurka. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah. I, I grew up with Ruben. I still love Rubinstein's mazurkas. And I actually love mm -hmm. Moravec a lot too. And Ashkenazi, I grew up with yeah. that kind of more standard. But they're all great. But his mm -hmm. mazurkas are, if you haven't, if anybody hasn't heard him play mazurkas, maybe first go listen to somebody like an Ashkenazi who's <laughs> phenomenal. I mean, I love Ashkenazi. And, and yeah. Rubinstein is colorful and beautiful and everything, or Horowitz. But then yeah. you listen to Friedman, it's like, it's just so different. Well, it's different. I mean, because he, in a sense, it might sound like you know it, that he makes a mountain out of a molehill. Because I mean, it's it, these right. these are these are no longer little quaint little village pieces. It's like all of a sudden it becomes this gigantic epic uh -huh. uh, story. But rhythmically, he's actually doing something that you know. There's documented evidence that this is what Chopin wanted because Chopin mm -hmm. got into an argument with a fellow composer who said that that's not the rhythm that you're saying it is. Mm -hmm. And this was, you know, not just any musician, this was another composer, Meyerbeer, mm -hmm. who, uh, you know, and they never spoke again, apparently, because they had this argument where Chopin was showing that, you know, no, I want this accented in this certain way that he couldn't communicate through the written notation. Yeah. And this is probably what it is that we're hearing Friedman do. Mm -hmm. And again, it doesn't mean that everybody needs to do it. You know, uh, Marila Jonas does not do that in her mazurka recordings. And I would not trade her mazurka recordings for anything, yeah. but nor would I tra trade Friedman's. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, maybe a little you know, bit like of that. It goes back to that authenticity. Like, like, you know, what, what, what do you, what, what is it cap What are you capable of even owning? And, mm -hmm. and you're, um, you're playing one thing is, is completely different than, than somebody who's, 
lived it or you know it's just, it's mm-hmm. different it's, it. it's not worse or better it's different that's it yeah that's it um okay so let me pull up a mazurka here and uh, let's give this a listen cool So cool. I mean, you could really wonder whether somebody slipped something into your drink because if you're listening to this, what parallel dimension did I just enter? Because this is just not, you know, we ain't in Kansas anymore. That rhythm is wild. It's really, you know, and it can ruffle some feathers because it's not sort of this dainty, quaint, cute little, you know, way I'm expecting to hear it. And, you know, I suspect if we heard Beethoven himself play, uh, some feathers would be ruffled. And possibly if we heard Chopin himself play. And this is something that I've had to say to students, you know, when they were saying, I might have brought this up before uh, in our previous talk, when I played Rachmaninoff playing Chopin to them and said, oh, his rubato is so exaggerated. (laughs) I'm thinking, well, and yours isn't. Uh, You know, and I said, well, you know, I held myself back and I said, so is there any guarantee that if you heard a recording by Chopin that you would like it? Yeah, no. And their jaws just dropped and they realized, you know, oh, okay, we've got some biases. Yeah, Yeah. And it might not be, and it doesn't mean that we can't like this other way. It doesn't mean we can't like the not rhythmically you know, sort of doing what Friedman's doing and those soaring phrases that just, you know, these dramatic, uh, these dramatic bursts of energy. Of course there's other ways, but it's still so wonderful. It's like when you brought up the story of Bartok teaching his student and and his own pieces and saying, don't play that so much in the style of Bartok. You know, it has to be more, whatever you're thinking Bartok is, it's not me. Um, It's not, that's not it. Yeah, exactly. I love what, you know, and that, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. 
No, I actually, <laughs> you're going to have to edit this part out because I can't remember what I was going to oh, say. Well, then, <laughs> Go ahead, I was going to say with uh, Friedman, what he does with some of the phrases, like he gets this really robust uh, bass and there's just so much buoyancy to it. Very, very dance-like, but sort of a frenetic dance energy and, mm -hmm. and you're just all over the place. And then I love how he... Um, he breaks expectation and that's why i had one little chuckle and i think i, I heard mike uh, chuckle a bit in another piece we we're listening to and i i also remember obviously people are not going to hear that because we're going to play the recording but um yeah you just have a certain expectation that it will go one two three one two three and sometimes he goes one two three one two three or he goes one two three one two like he got the one in before you were <laughs> ready goes, for it. One two three one two three. Yeah, it's like how <laughs> how'd you get the one in there? I wasn't I wasn't there yet, but somehow you snuck it in. So. I know it's absolutely amazing. And that's, you know, and there's, there's stuff there because you, you guys are so much more adept with the manual side of the, the performance style. Whereas, you know, for me, it's really my ears that are, are well-trained, but I'm not as, you know, into the score where, you know, you're, you're naming, you know, it sounds like you've got perfect pitch and you could, you know, you could name what Marilyn was playing there. So, uh, you know, that, that's, that's beyond me as well. And so there's going to be some of this stuff where we're not going to catch it, but we can still, we still get the impression or we still get the emotional response. And that's fabulous. And that's kind of what we want. I think we want to stir the pot a little bit and hear some, uh, you know, have the music create some kind of impression. And that's what these musicians were so great at doing. Yeah. And yet he'd probably be eliminated in the first round of a, I mean, I know it's cliche to say, but Oh, no, well, uh, yeah. And it's, and it's absolutely true. And I'm again, you know, you'll forgive my, uh, forgive if I, me if I can't remember if I mentioned this last time, but, uh, one of the first talks I gave at a university was, uh, it was arranged by Alan Walker, mm. the Liszt and Chopin biographer, um, in Ontario. And I, it was an introductory, you know, introduction to historical recordings. And I had 10 pianists and he said afterwards, well, I think eight or nine of them wouldn't have made it through the first <laughs> round. Of the uh, it's so, you know what? Okay. Well, with, and it's true. with him, he was actually my judge, uh, one of my judges at the international LA list competition. Um, he was, he was on the panel. And it's funny because, you know, a lot of the people that, and I'm not saying him or others, but a lot of people that kind of call for that or the big name teachers who, who leave the juries because they're pissed off and you know, this great artist wasn't chosen. And But, but often, mm -hmm. not always, but often those are the same teachers or people who have kind of promoted that or pushed that or taught that or chosen, mm -hmm. you know, 10 other winners in competitions that, that exhibited mm -hmm. those things that they seem to be against. And I don't know. I, and I've judged now a number of competitions myself and it hits really hard. Uh, so I, I, it is I understand. Yeah, it is really hard to be there in the moment and you have very little time to make your notate, mm -hmm. your notes. And then, you know, there's all these, there's this democratic process mm -hmm. where it has to, you know, everything needs to be tabulated. And so, you know, some enough people can believe really strongly in one and it doesn't work in the other. You know, yeah. Lepati came in second. Yeah. He tied for second, in fact, in Vienna. And that's probably one of the things that actually launched his career, as it did happen for many, because yeah. Porto refused to sign his certificate and oh. said, you know, come study, come study with me in Paris, uh, which Lepati did starting the next year. And Corto was then famously said more than once, well, I actually don't have anything to teach you. <laughs> he was and I, met, I met somebody who was at one of the master classes oh, cool. and he said, you know, Lepati played something. He was about 16 or 17. 
And uh, Lepati played something and Corto just sat there and he said nothing. Oh, wow. And then he just said, I have nothing to say. <laughs> you know, and that was perfect. That yeah. was it. <laughs> you know, and, but, it, but it's hard, you know, yeah. competitions are hard. Yeah. And apparently the person who won that competition actually was amazing. And sadly, yeah. um, you know, went insane and died in an asylum wow. long after. So it was, it's really quite tragic. So, you know, these, these things happen, but, you know, competitions are not everything and this is right. what's challenging. And how, how do we, you know, how do you compare Friedman with Jonas, yeah. with Lepati, with Solomon, like they're completely different artists yeah. doing completely different things, all of which is wonderful. Yeah, we can enjoy and all of them. This, yeah. This is what's so this is what's so difficult. And so I can have I have very wide ranging tastes in what I like to listen to and who I enjoy hearing. And you know, other people will as well, or they're gonna have whatever parameters they like, and that's great, you know. But it's yeah. I, I think that at the very least to know that things are possible that we didn't necessarily know are possible. Yeah. And that's one of the things we happen when we hear Friedman and Hoffman and Lepati for the first time, we hear these effects and we think, my gosh, you know, what did I, what did I just hear? Mm -hmm. I think art is so important to, to understand that there are so many levels uh, of greatness and different levels of greatness. And we're in a society, at least in the Western world where, uh, places mm -hmm. and prizes and objectively measurable things are so important and yeah. and people don't even realize how subjective that is so we say like oh the fastest uh you know runner or the fastest man or the fastest mm -hmm. woman or the best tennis player you know and we don't realize that the game of tennis has changed so much in the last 30 years you can't compare number one today with uh, you know Connors or something they were playing essentially different games um yeah so yeah. how can you say and and People always like to say, well, like in, in my one of my circles, the chess circle, you know, would Bobby Fischer beat Magnus Carlsen today? You know, that's mm. that's a hypothetical. And in in some yeah. ways, the answer is easy. Of course not. But in, in other ways, if Bobby Fischer had the same opportunities and access to computer databases as we do mm -hmm. today in the Internet and all the opening yeah. theory that's been developed over 50 years, I mean, he had a genius and a gift. So, yeah, maybe maybe he'd have the things that the stars would align for him, but you can't, you just, uh, those hypotheticals don't really work. Um, totally. Well, yeah. it's like Nadia Komanich, you know, you look at what one at 10, the first perfect 10 in gymnastics, yeah. you know, there was no doubles. Yeah. And now people are doing triples with twists. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, everything the, the most anybody did was like, you know, a tumbling run that had like maybe three, three parts to it. Now yeah. they're doing these things that have like seven or eight. Yeah. And then there's a triple, triple somersault with a twist. It was just absolutely inconceivable. Back yeah. It's and, numbers. She also had a charm, though, where her movements mm -hmm. were not yes. contrived, mm -hmm. where if you look at the fluidity of her movements, she wasn't saying, okay, well, I have to do this with my wrists or I have to do it. Like, it was, it was all part of a natural expression, whereas now you see them doing things by component and requirement yeah. in terms of I have to pause after my, my sticks. All of a sudden, we're talking about gymnastics now. Yeah. But you know, fine. if anybody gets it, they'll, they'll get it. You know, there, there's... It, the standards have changed uh -huh. in some ways, you know, yes, it's wonderful because there's advances and there's things that have gotten better, mm -hmm. but I get concerned when the technical level has gotten better without that artistic lived in 
you know, like we've great, we've got, you know, nice modern homes, but then, well, how's the design inside and what's mm -hmm. happening in the design and are people really living? Are they enjoying their interiors? Or is it really expressing who they are? Yeah. You know, which is this whole other story. So yeah. I think that, you know, part of the philosophical discussion we, is, do you relinquish some of the artistry when you increase that technical difficulty? Have we lost some of it? You know, and and do we uh, we need to? I mean, can we still have those triple flips today and, and all the yeah. all the tough stuff and uh, have the artistry still? I think so. You know, I, but I, I think, think I, yeah. I would think so. Well, listen, I mean, Le Patty's Bach was made possible with the technique that helped him play that Ravel Alborada del Gracioso with yeah. these glissandi that nobody's ever been able to equal since, despite all the incredible technique that apparently everybody has today. Mm -hmm. Nobody can still do those glissandi that he did unedited because right. you know, the recordings were not edited back then. Um, and so, but it was how was he using mm -hmm. his technique? Right. So he used his technique in Bach to play the Bach the way that it should be played and not by overdoing it. So, you know, the same technique that can do a triple somersault mm -hmm. can also do a single or a double. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And it can do it probably really well, yeah. you know, and this is the fact that, you know, I think with any kind of skill, you need to be able to, you need to have more than you need yeah. to be able to do something well. And so if all these people now who, and this is absolutely true, you know, that at the time, in the 1950s, very few people could play Stravinsky's Petrushka Suite. Sure. Yeah. And certainly when it was written in the 1920s, very few people could. Mm -hmm. um, Marcel Mayer recorded it, and I was told by the engineer that that was the only time he, she had to do several retakes. Uh -huh. It was difficult. And she had a phenomenal technique. Yeah. But that was the only time that she, they ever had to do um, you know, several takes. And nowadays, everybody can do that. Yeah. but. Okay, but how, mm -hmm. you know, and with what kind of tone, you know, where they do play the Stravinsky Bartokish and Stravinsky-ish instead of necessarily, you know, with that jazzy kind of looser and, you know, how's the voicing and so on. So, you know, there's something for something. And I think with all the technique and to rephrase that rather than technique with all of Finger the dexterity. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The dexterity and the digital precision that people have nowadays and the capacity to play that kind of complex music if they can then use that uh, control that they've got to phrase things melodically, to do that kind of transparent voicing like Lepati was doing in the Bach and that regularity of rhythm, <laughs> that would be something. Uh, I interviewed Livia Rev, a great Hungarian pianist, for her 95th birthday about a decade ago. And she she actually brought up the same thing. She said, you know, well, everybody can play Prokofiev and Stravinsky now. And she's like, I ask all my students to bring me a, you know, a movement of an early Beethoven, of a middle period Beethoven sonata and a Mozart and so on. And she's like, invariably, the students will say, oh, you like easy music. Oh, to which sure. she would say, we'll see if it's easy yeah. by the time I'm done with you. Right. By the way, I think what you just hit on is, is key. Like for, for music to continue to evolve and for the art of music to continue to become, um, what it can be and, and turn those, those, you know, magnificent, you know, triple somersaults into something, you know, artistic and, and that's communicating something genuine. It really takes, first of all, an artist who's capable of doing it. And then second of all, a mentor or somebody who can push that artist in, in a way that, mm -hmm. that can allow the, 
you know, the, the, the expression and the, the communication, because, because art in all its forms, specifically music is really about community, communicating something that cannot be communicated in any other way. And, and if you can, it really takes both sides of that, an artist and somebody who can, can mentor that artist in in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is, this is what's really important. You know, we, if we think that when these musicians were being trained, that we're listening to in these historical recordings, they weren't they were learning first of all a level of dexterity and technique that was actually in some ways beyond what's being taught now because they were really being taught on a very deep level some of the mechanics but also some of the interpretative uh, elements but they were also living a cultured life that yeah. was very different yeah right and where it was not you know this many credits in university and you have to do this and you have to spend time doing yeah. that which you know some of which can enhance some things but which can also uh, squeeze some of the joy and some of the passion and also not inform your music making by you know you go to a museum yeah. and you see the paintings that's going to inform something else where it was you know this language of the time uh, and it was these were all different faces of the creative essence and spirit and uh, mm -hmm. mindset. So I think that unfortunately, you know, things have gotten quite technical and dry as well in terms of the lived experience of art yeah. and artistry. So absolutely, I hope that changes a bit. I, I see some glimmers of hope. I do, I do as well, and I do see as well. You know, you named, uh, you, you named, uh, you know, that things are starting to change in piano circles uh, in terms of you know individuality. I am absolutely seeing a change and hearing a change and hearing levels of individuality. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, Andrew Tyson, whom I met and heard in Vancouver a few years ago, you know, he delivered. I still remember this one nuance in Chopin's Fourth Ballade that was just mm -hmm. so phenomenal mm -hmm. and then you know it was not surprised afterwards in the q a when he said that you know his life changed when he was 14 and his teacher gave him a cd of courteau yeah. <laughs> you know and it was like well, right? that would explain it yeah. right yeah. and then and then he met afterwards and he's like oh i've actually been following your page for years and I was like, oh, well yeah. <laughs> there, we go. there we go you know and we've talked about this and he you know yeah. this whole this you know how much do you follow the text and how much do you uh you know bring things out and i'm i'm, I'm grateful that there's somebody like him and he's just one of many yeah. who are starting to really, you know, they're really searching and listening uh, on all of these levels yeah. and choosing to be very individual. And I think that the where individuality is not contradictory to service of the music, but in fact is a required component. Oh, yeah, that's, that's important because I think in today's world, we have a lot of... Um, I, I'm just, and it's good, you know, empowerment for the self is, is important. And we've come a long way in psychology since the 1950s, but um, mm -hmm. just I'm, whatever I say is important just because I said it and it's me and it's like, well, you know, what, yeah. what yeah. has given you that authority or have you, have you earned that authority? And mm -hmm. maybe, maybe you can't earn, I don't know, but there's something to, yes. to, um, like having to defend that a bit or, or having it also mm -hmm. be classy and having it work in a culture. Although sometimes you just want to be outside that completely. And there are a few successful people that, you know, break all the molds and then they're okay. Uh, yeah. And it's really them. But 
Yeah, I think I think we get into this very, at least in this in the Western world, in you in the U.S. especially, this very individualistic. You know, I am the most important, and so whatever mm-hmm. I say is 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 great just because I said it. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, let, no. let's let's also follow this the footsteps of other greats um, and and learn from others. Yeah. So, that, and and the humility as well, humility, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a, there's that really important balance between confidence and humility yeah. that I think is a real dance for the artistic mindset, and yeah. to really be able to both stand behind what you do, but also be exploring and you know not necessarily sure. And I'm going to try this because I'm curious if this is going to work and how that, and that's part of the creative process as well, where you're not overriding with personality, but you're actually engaged in a dance and inspiration, you know, meets you on the dance floor meets you at the piano. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's this collaborative, uh, this collaborative process. Yeah. That's absolutely. Oh yeah. I I love that. I put you on that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That that, yeah. that, might, that might go somewhere up front. I think yeah. no, that that was that beautifully said, Mark. And 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 yeah, I think it also takes people like yourself, people um, who are willing to go through the effort. And 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 I acknowledge it takes effort to um, understand and listen to, and 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 prepare your ears and your mind um, so that that you can communicate to us. And to artists of the future, like it, it takes people like you to be able to to recognize greatness when it's presented, and, and I appreciate that about about you bringing that to us tonight. Yeah, well, thank you so much, and I loved hearing everything that I mean. You guys have so much experience yourselves, and you know, and from a, that different angle of being at the keyboard and here, you know, being able to hear. Uh, your thoughts and your impressions. It's just, it's so important for us to be able to have these conversations and also yep. to hear, and this is something that we're not seeing in the world as well right now, this, you know, being able to also have, we've agreed largely, although perhaps not mm-hmm. entirely, and this is like to be able to have a conversation with people who have different perspectives and nobody's wrong. We're just listening and we're sharing our ideas and having this alive conversation and exploring yep. these topics. I think it's, so important. I think that's one of the great things that the arts can bring us. Yep. I agree 100%. Is there, is there a piece that, that maybe you could leave us on that, that maybe you can say, mm-hmm. Hey, if, if there's something you want to listen to. <laughs> this is a great question. Um, Elias, something come to mind. Oh for boy. You? Um, I'm just thinking of what you, yep. what you listed here. Hoffman. I was going to say, we haven't heard any Hoffman yet. Hoffman's great. I haven't heard. Hoffman. I mean, the, you know, it's the C sharp is very, very famous, um, but yeah, uh, I don't think I would leave with that. No. I wonder what even. Um, or actually, I think this will be a little unexpected. I think it's going to be uh, a bit of a Geza and a part of the Schumann Etude Symphonique. Okay, okay, and this will be. Um, I think you'll hear. There's a little. There's a bit of magic over here.
Voila. Voila, indeed. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Mark, and thank you for sharing your um, expertise. Uh, by the way, this is we've been listening to Mark Ainley. I haven't mentioned your name since the beginning. Um, you can find him on the the, the Piano Files uh, Facebook page. Where else, can, where else can people find you if they want to hear more about what you do? Uh, thepianofiles.com. I also have uh, the Piano Files pages on Patreon, on Twitter, uh, on Instagram. That uh, to hear the recordings, uh, you know, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon are the ways to go. Fantastic. And the website has longer features as well. So okay, yeah. wonderful. And we also have our my co-host, Elias Axel Pedersen. I, I love doing this music stuff. Uh, it's great. Ah. It's been amazing. Uh, my name is Mike Levitt, and you've been listening to And If Love Remains. <laughs>